Hi, Tanetta. Hi, Anthony. How are you doing today? I'm okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good yeah, fall day. It is a beautiful fall day. So we are doing our first podcast recording after our first month, after doing our first Table Church Learning cohort together. Yay. We, we kicked it off. We did it. Our topic for our October was theology of place and race and democracy. We read Chocolate City, which is the history of race and democracy in this here city, Washington, D.C. Tanetta, why did it make sense to you for our learning cohort to start here? We're at church. Aren't we just supposed to preach the gospel and talk about Jesus and that's it? Yeah, I think it, it made sense to start here because place often becomes this invisible reality that whether we see it or not is deeply formative for us and shapes us. And I think, you know, even, you know, I think about the stories in Genesis in which, you know, the the opening narratives in which God makes a home, a place, and people are then set in that place. But the place is actually what gives them life and shapes and forms them. And they become co-creators in that place. Uh, and I also think, you know, as a church that's inter- interested in pursuing anti-racism and decolonizing uh, and just thinking about kind of this more beautiful gospel, I think we have to talk about truth and faith as being always contextual and always located. And that doesn't mean there's no there are no universals. I'm certainly not saying that, but I am saying we miss a lot when we don't think about the rootedness of truth and how it comes from stories and ritual that are that happen in a place. Uh, so I think it was really important to start our, our learning cohort with that sense of rootedness. And, and I'm deeply aware that in D.C., among many of our newer residents, there is this this grappling with how to become rooted in this in the city. What what is the city about? And certainly grappling with those questions as people of faith is deeply important. One of my professors in seminary talked about the the scandal of particularity, mm-hmm. meaning that when Jesus showed up, Jesus did not show up as a samurai in first century Judea or Palestine. He, he, he was a rabbi. He was a stonemason or carpenter. He spoke uh, Aramaic. He, he knew Hebrew. He showed up at the temple for the festivals. He was particular to a certain culture, certain geography. And there can be, I think, this probably well-intended, but in the end, harmful instinct for Christians to try to universalize too much. There's truth with a capital T somewhere out there. And there's also the truth of what happened in this city. And if we're, if we're not aware of that, if we're ignorant of that, we are, we are hampering or cut, we're cutting ourselves off at the knees of our ability to articulate what that gospel that we're just supposed to preach is. This was an important place to start. This is how we embody ourselves as Jesus followers in our particular place. I studied history um, as a part of my university schooling. And I... I Can I be honest with you? I've never... like. You were an English teacher. You studied history. You're currently a pastor. Like, were there things you didn't study? <laughs> <laughs> I no, I studied all the things that don't 
that are not considered lucrative. Like if it wasn't considered lucrative, I said, I want to study that. Um, yeah, so I double majored uh, in undergrad in history and English. And actually my first teaching job was in history. It was a, I was a world history teacher. And so I, I am fascinated now as I go into spaces, uh, particularly more progressive theological spaces that are doing a good job of talking about the intersection of history and theology. And I think in the work of grounding our faith, reconstructing wherever we are in kind of the, the Christian journey, uh, I think thinking about um, how do we recognize that our, our theological ideas are historical? They are, how do we historicize yeah. them to say they had a beginning? Like they came from somewhere in a group of people in a particular place. Um, and I think that gives us power, I, I think, to, to think um, more in, in more nuanced ways. So I think also beginning with the work of history um, yeah. sets us off in the cohort in a particular direction. I wanted to know of you, well, and, and both of us could talk about all of this, but yeah, what places are a part of you? Um, mm. What places are particularly a part of your memory and your sensing that have been formative for you? So definitely a Midwestern boy and grew up for, you know, first 10 years of my life is pretty tumultuous in terms of place and location started in Northern Indiana, but like a poor kind of crumbling apartment building. And then eventually after going through the foster system, living with some relatives ended up back in sort of a more middle-class small town home. And I, when I think about place, I think about sort of the ideas of like wide open space, which there's a lot of in the Midwest, and uh, perceived safety, which that's a whole, like I use the word perceived advisedly because there's all sorts of stuff wrapped up in there. I think about all of the just things that I did not have to, need to, or get to encounter because of the homogeneity of the of the places where I was. And I it wasn't, you know, this is embarrassing to say, but it wasn't honestly until my 20s where I began to consider like, how did that homogeneity happen? What, you know, it wasn't by accident. It wasn't just the forces of nature. And I think that's really interesting of the all the all but my very early life was I was in a more um, multicultural like apartment building. I was in the projects basically. Uh, so I was actually one of the few white kids in, in the, in the apartment building and all of that. But then for the rest of my life, it was all just very, it was pretty white and didn't have to encounter cultures or races other than my own. And just sort of assume that's where, that's the way everything was. Yeah. But I'm also aware of just like DC kind of, unless you are just really squeezing your eyes shut, like DC kind of makes you confront the history of the city. Because it gives a sense of age, it gives a sense of like, oh, this has been around for a while. But the thing I'm thinking about, even as I'm listening to Chocolate City or reading Chocolate City, going back to Goshen, Indiana, going back to Northwest Iowa, which uh, my family and I lived for about 10 years, of those places all have history too. And there's definitely a sense of like, oh, no, it's just always been like this. And like, hmm. I, I don't think that's true. I think 
I think that there's more history there. There's more, um, there's more that happened than just, well, it's always been, uh, in Northwest Iowa. It's always been the Dutch ghetto. It's always been, uh, you know, just a bunch of, of farmers making their way. Like, no, there's, there's a lot more that happened there. And when we sort of, it's that universalization again, we take a moment and say, this is the way it's always been. Then we're flattening our ability to interact with a, a, a place uh, in its kind of three-dimensional way. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I think one thing that comes up for me in terms of my formation in place and how I've transitioned into D.C. So I have strong memories of sitting on my grandmother's porch, like the porch as place was really yeah. important. And, and I mean, like a nice spacious porch, all your family drove up, you could see them driving up, um, all that kind of thing. And, you know, eating watermelon and, you know, all kinds of like Southern soul food on the porch with family in the like sweltering hot sun. And that, <laughs> that place of lingering, that's kind of spacious lingering was a part of how the South and kind of porch culture shaped me. And I think it's been interesting to consider that in D.C. there's the stoop, right? I see people sitting on their stoops, especially folks mm-hmm. who've been here for a long time. If I take a walk in my neighborhood, you've got your stoop sitters, your people. And, and the stoops are, tend to be smaller than I grew up with. But it's interesting because here, that formation, I, I think there's actually more opportunity formation for, for formation in interacting with strangers, so the, yeah. the Porsches that I grew up on, they were very much, these are the people we know. But the turn I've had to make in terms of appreciation has been around like, oh, these are smaller, these kind of outdoor areas, like on you know private properties or apartment buildings. And yet they let me interact with neighbors in actually a different way that forms me differently and gives me access to something I actually didn't have in the South. So I've really, you know, I've, I've really kind of tried to think, think through some more of those kinds of things that when I first got here, I was like, ah, DC. I'm like, oh, DC. Okay. That's fascinating. Yeah. This is, it's such a great, this is a great example to me of like, I, as a white person, I don't see my culture. Like I just, and so I hear you talk about the porch and like, oh, there's a version of this, uh, but in the opposite. So for us, we lived in a, in a planned subdivision. uh, So this would be age 10 forward. So everybody had yards and we didn't, people had porches and you may or may not sit on them and wave at people, but where neighbor conversations had was the end of the driveway. And what I find really fascinating about that is that there's a good 10, 20, 30 yards between you and your neighbor. And that, that, that barrier was, that was the default barrier. Like, sure, you would cross it. People would be, could be friendly or whatever. But the most of the conversations was at the end of my driveway and my neighbor at the end of their driveway. And, you know, never the two shall meet. Uh, and that's a different vibe than, the you know lingering on the stoop or the porch mm-hmm. thinking about place you get into the the crevices of formation and i think it's helpful to allow those things to emerge um to think through like what do i want to be intentionally formed in and what do i need to let to let go of a bit more i want to tell just a, a, a somewhat brief story about our our moving here experience yeah. emily and i both we grew up in school systems where you just you just went to your boundary school. I think that was, that was the school that was available. When we had our, our, our kids in Iowa, 
you there there were much smaller school districts that you could do open enrollment in. But again, your choices were like two. And then we began to plan to move to DC and there's there's dozens if not hundreds of school choices and that affects what you where you move to and what neighborhoods you're in and all of that. And someone did us a very kind favor when we first moved here and bought us, like gifted us uh, an appointment with a DC school lottery consultant. When we found out about this gift, it put Emily and I both in a bit of a panic of like, oh God, is it so complicated that we need a consultant for this? Like it just sort of put us in a little bit of of a tailspin mentally. But it was a very nice gift and we met with this person they kind of began to walk us through the the DC school system, which, you know, we, we don't have the time to go through all of that, but it's a bit of a head trip of where, you know, you gotta, you gotta put in your lottery slots and you gotta sort of be strategic about what you put on the top of the list and what you put in the middle and what you put on the bottom. But the thing that was deeply fascinating for Emily and I was what, what was defined as a good school and what we fortunately had some help realizing and kind of quickly realized ourselves is like, oh, this is all coded racist language for how many white people are in the neighborhood, how many black people are in the neighborhood, how many Latino or Hispanic people are in the neighborhood. And the really fascinating piece of, well, this is a good school until about second grade, and then it gets to be um, you know, less good in the, in the third, fourth, fifth grade. Like, oh, why is that? Well, because families tend to move out into the suburbs around then, and then, you know, the the schools get worse. Again, which was coded language for majority white folks move out to the suburbs, and BIPOC folks tend to stay in the city, and that makes it a quote-unquote worse school. So I'm thinking about that as I'm reading Chocolate City and hearing about the history of 1930s, 40s, and 50s DC schools where the exact same patterns are happening. And even though, you know, if somebody's listening to this who lives out in the suburbs, I'm going to nearly guarantee that you did not move out to the suburbs with the thought of like, dear God, I got to get away from the black folks in the city. Like, I, I doubt you had that thought in mind. I give you the benefit of the doubt. But because there's this history that predates us by a generation or two, we find ourselves in the same patterns where intentions be damned, the effects are the same. And that, to me, knowing that history, knowing the reasons for that history, can't help but influence about how I think about my own actions today. I think it's a lot more complicated than, you know, you did a racism by moving. But I do think that there is a level of thoughtfulness that we have some obligation to be engaged in before we just fall into the same patterns that have been before us for years and years and years. And we, you mean white folks. And by we, I mean white folks. Thank you. Yeah, I I have grappled with a lot of a lot of that from the opposite side of feeling like mm-hmm. having to think through what is mine to take on as a black woman yeah. and as a woman who I I was not born here. Um so what is my responsibility? Um as somebody who often, you know, when I go to neighborhood things in a diverse, racially diverse groups, the black folks who've been here for years are like, you're like us. And really I'm like, I 
Yes. And no, I also have to think about what my responsibility here is as well. And that's why it's important to think through like, yeah, when I say we, I I am talking to white folks, Uh, my set of obligations when I, you know, in, in the spirit of the, of the Hebrew prophets confess the sin of my people. I I'm, I'm talking about, I'm talking about white folks and I'm talking about, you know, in my case, men and the role roles that we play. Whereas to know to you have a, you have a, you have a different history. You've got a different set of responsibilities and obligations to think about. Yeah. There's in our church, small group, we're, uh, we're reading uh, this here flesh by, Cole Arthur Riley, and she says something about place that intersected with me or for me with the kind of, you know, the the history of, of the last, what, 30, 40, 50 years in D.C., and, and particularly the, the moniker Chocolate City and mm. how that fits or doesn't fit, in, you know, in, in this moment. So she says, I think it is one of the deepest evils to become a thief of place. To make someone a stranger to their home and then mark their relationship to the land by bondage instead of love. And I tell you, when I read that, it just it it got inside of me. This idea of becoming a thief of place. Um, and yeah, so often, again, when I'm with neighbors, um, I often from folks who've been here for a long time, whether they were born here or not, but they've been here 30 or 40 years. There is such a sense of grief about the changing demographics in the city. Uh, And it doesn't seem to me to come from a sense of we don't want white people in this place, but it does come from like this place of like, it was really nice for once to have a sense of power. And once again, we are losing our sense of being empowered in our own place. And there's such a loss there. And I often don't know what to do with it, but I hear it over and over again. that We just, we want to feel like we can have something in this world. And DC felt like that for lots of people for a while with all its problems. <laughs> it did feel like that um, for a while. And I think, I think a lot about, particularly for folks who are, who are transient to it, what does it mean to be in solidarity with that grief, to act and to walk around in recognition of that grief. And I certainly don't have answers about exactly how that looks, but just to name that underneath a lot of the tension is just a sense of loss. And I'll just say for transient folks, for white folks, the I think the instinct can be defensiveness mm. of, well, I didn't. Well, that's not my fault. Well, I just, and I'd encourage everyone to question that defensiveness for for a moment a few moments maybe set it aside and just can you can you be in the grief can you listen to the grief can you hear that grieving and not immediately jump to defend so what what kind of walking out of chocolate city what are some of the things you are thinking about as a person of faith and what it means to be in the city like what what will you take with you Something that you and I have talked about before, I honestly just said this to you yesterday and now I'll put it out into the world. If I have a fault, it's, uh, you know, I, I, I have my own tendencies towards white saviorism of, hey, I'm one of the good guys. You can trust in me. 
and take it upon myself to leverage whatever privilege and power that I do have for the sake of others. And not not saying that I shouldn't do that. There's some extent to that. That is my responsibility and that is my calling. But I think what I've been really paying attention to coming out of Chocolate City and our and our discussions on history in this this place is there have been and are already lots of BIPOC folk already with power, already leading, already doing revolutionary things in this city. And it's not always my job to be like, ooh, let 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 me elevate them. Like, no, 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 no. My job oftentimes needs to be, let me put myself as a as a student, as a learner. Let me put myself under somebody else's authority. Uh, because they've got the experience, the skills, the the know-how, the 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 lived life that I just simply don't and won't have. There's a certain arrogance that I and I think other uh, white folks, people in majority culture can have of like, mm, we're just going to walk around and we're just going to be so generous and give people all the power. Like, no, sh- just be quiet. These people exist and have existed. And you and I have just been unaware. And just because I've been unaware doesn't mean that the, they haven't been up to really, really great things. So, you know, practically, that means for me, there are churches, there are nonprofits, there are leaders in this city who are already doing good work. And I don't need to go and reinvent the wheel every time. I'm curious. Can you talk a little bit about you? You said you said, you know, sometimes sh- I just need to sh- be quiet. Like it's it's time to listen. It's time to. Can you talk a little bit about the emotions of that? Because I often interact with folks who kind of know, you know, wherever they are, they recognize I have some privilege in a space or in a place. And so that is what I need to be doing. And yet, what are the emotions around that? And how do you stay healthy in that? That's a side Mm -hmm. note, but I have to ask because I, I, I think it's pretty important. Yeah, no, I think it is important. And I have had conversations uh, along those lines of like, is there, you know, is there still, is there still room for me, the straight white male? One, I think white folks, men, people who have been afforded privilege and power in religious political spaces, I think we, I think we just we get so used to taking up the majority of the space that anything less feels like loss or like unfairness somehow. And I think we've got, I have to be, I'll speak for myself here. I have to be very much aware of like, if I've taken up 80% of the space and now I'm taking up 50% of the space, that's still a damn lot of space. (laughs) So I have to be aware of that. Two, and again, speaking solely for myself, uh, and this is honest to God, something I'm working out with my therapist of, uh, I, I, I was the sort of kid who was just told all the time that God has great plans for you. God's going to do something amazing through you. You're just, Anthony, I just can't wait to see what God's going to do through you. And so I, you know, walked around with this sort of grandiose mentality of like, I'm going to, I'm going to, I mean, honestly, this is embarrassing to say out loud, but like, you know, as a teenager, like I'm going to pack stadiums for worship concerts and I'm going to, uh, I'm going to fill, I'm going to preach and thousands will come. Like, thankfully I've gotten a little bit healthier since then. 
but still I can have a bit of mentality of like, man, if I'm not the most active on social media, if I don't have the biggest following, if I'm not cranking out books, I'm somehow wasting my potential. And that is a tough emotion. It feels like a sense of like loss or giving up somehow or giving up ground to stay healthy. I, I need to become more focused on just this current moment and just the whatever people that God has given me to be responsible for, which is primarily my kids, my family, and then the people of the table church and not some theoretical thousands of people. And I think that naturally draws me towards, well, yeah, of course uh, I need to put be, become a student and a learner of other people. That That is, yes, God has great things in store for me. And that is to become one of the a good student and a good learner and a good listener. That is the great thing that God has in store for me. That's the sort of first shall be last, last shall be first ethic that Jesus taught us. Yes, Jesus said that his glory was his crucifixion. So yeah, whatever glory has in store for me, I better be prepared for it for me to look a lot, a lot less than perhaps the images that have, were given to me as a kid. So it sounds like you're saying there's there's ego work, which sounds like spiritual work. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right. No, I think I, I'll never forget it. I don't know uh, where I heard it or read it, but I read um, of, of, you know, or, or maybe it was just an anecdotal story. Um, but I, I heard of an enslaved person, you know, right after um, kind of freedom came Um saying like jubilantly bottom rails on top now. Um, mm. And I think the other side of that ego work for people of color and people of color in the city is how not to recreate the mm. systems. Like to say like, this has been a place where black folks have led and the gospel work is how do we make room? Uh, mm. How, and that, that is also a work of, you know, letting go of ego and um, crucifixion. Woo, you're talking about crucifixion, Pastor Anthony. But it's <laughs> it's it's a it's it's a work opposite side, same direction. Um, so so want to name that. I would say yeah. just walking out of this out of this book. I think some about well, literally walking. Actually, every single thing I've read about place, and then reading Chocolate City and thinking about. The literal places, you know, the, the 14th and U and uh, where the building museum is now and how the prison used to be there has made me think about the spirituality of walking and being rooted, like literally rooting your feet in the ground yeah. and what that means to slow down uh, in the city, to greet strangers, to meet neighbors as a way of being present to place and being formed. Yeah, and I, I found myself also, as the city changes, thinking about how do I, as somebody who's been here for a good while, but not I wasn't born here, remain attentive to people who've been here for a long time and continue to let it be kind of a laboratory for leadership, hopefully on the national level even, of many folks following Black and brown folks who've been here for a long time. 
in their wisdom. Mm-hmm. Like we talk about that kind of thing all the time. <laughs> um, but how do we live that out? And with the ups and downs and with the learnings and with the, all of that and just in humility exists together in this place. Uh, I think a lot about that. And this book has really challenged me in that way. Well, I hope that we can continue to have more conversations like this. I think DC is this beautiful and unique city. I have come to love it pretty unexpectedly, actually. And so I, I think it is, it's important as followers of Jesus to think about the particularity of this place and what it, it means for us. And then I think next month or in a couple of weeks, we're going to uh, continue our learning cohort and move forward in, with a book called Multi. And we'll be talking about some of these same things around how we exist together how we uh, exist uh, with multiple identities, particularly in a fellowship of faith. So I'm definitely yeah. looking forward to that. Yeah, I'm looking forward. We'll get really explicit about power and having a common core and center that holds us together. That also doesn't flatten us into one homogenous beige. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, Thanks, Tanana. This is good.